Ah, right-minded listeners, we are getting emotional this week because Grant, it seems we couldn't let the summer pass without dedicating an episode to fear and anger. But true to our tagline, weekly inspiration for writers, when we talk about fear and anger, it is, of course, inspiring. Yeah, thanks for making that connection because I've been feeling plenty of fear and anger for a while now, and I know our listeners will appreciate the inspirational spin as much as I do. And the two guests we're highlighting, Erica Jong and Lily Dansker, both brought the inspiration through empowering writers to explore those emotions on the page and not to see what might be deemed negative emotions as necessarily problematic or things to be avoided in our writing. That's right. Erica Jong is, of course, a legend and an icon and wrote the novel Fear of Flying back in the 1970s, which was a book that explored fear, but also fearlessness. And Lily Danzinger's much more recent memoir, Negative Space, openly excavates anger. Her teenage anger manifested in all its messiness of rage and doing whatever she wanted and giving the finger to the consequences of that behavior. Uh, and also her more mature adult rendering of anger at her parents for their choices, their drug addiction, and the consequences of all that, uh, not the least of which was her father's death due to what she believes to be the consequences of the drug abuse and therefore his absence. Uh, and these books are so different from one another. Uh, you know, they're two writers from different generations, one an older boomer and the other a younger Gen Xer. But they are both letting loose on the page in ways to me that felt incredibly brave, sometimes raucous, and even out of control, but more in the sense of letting go, writing with abandon and writing to see what happens and maybe letting the writing lead them to new possibilities. And this always has a kind of frontier-like quality to me where you're following the writer where they're leading you and it can be a little bit scary and at the same time exhilarating. And that was the point of intersection for me with these two authors. And it made me think about how we give writers permission to lay bare their fears and to articulate anger on the page and to examine how and why we hold back because we do, writers do, uh, human beings do, because our culture tells us, and especially women, not to be angry. And fear is not a very well-loved feeling either. Uh, so to give yourself permission to explore emotion is a form of self-care, in fact, and it's also incredibly freedom-giving when it comes to your writing. I love that take, Brooke. And we've talked about this on a few episodes, you know, how anger in particular isn't often seen as an emotion of creative inspiration. But I think we need to keep reinterpreting, you know, this notion of the traditional muse, which I think often is presented in, you know, similar ways to its classical origins, you know, a woman playing the flute or the harp or singing into an artist's ear and a bacchanalia of wine and candles and incense, you know, and, and all that's a fine way to think about inspiration, but anger and fear are two emotions that don't get a lot of respect and are actually stances against what's wrong in the world, you know, what's threatening, what might take away our humanity or our joy. So I think we need to revere them for their truth and their creative potential. Uh, we tend to hide them. And I think Lily and Erica show us how we shouldn't hide them, but embrace them. Absolutely. Here, here. And so we're going to share some favorite moments from these two episodes. Uh, as I've been saying all summer, go back and listen to the whole show. They're always good. But here are the highlights. And here are Erica and Lily. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I could not be more excited about today's guest, Erica Jong, a poet, novelist, and essayist whose works have been influential all over the world. Her first novel, Fear of Flying, Never Out of Print, has sold at least 27 million copies and always counting. Erica is a feminist legend and author of many books, and I counted 27 titles. So, Erica, you'll correct me there if I missed a few. I don't know <laughs> if I remember how many. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll go with 27 and maybe more. Um, And Fear of Flying will celebrate its 50th anniversary in 2023. But for now, we're not quite there yet. It's still 2021. uh, And we're just so grateful, Erica, to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. I reached out to you because I'm going to be teaching Fear of Flying early next year as part of a memoir class. And of course, Fear of Flying is a novel, but it's been described as a quasi-novel, quasi-memoir in some places. And the world has changed so much since 1973, uh, both in terms of the rise of memoir, but also in the blurring of the lines between memoir and fiction. And so I wondered if you would indulge me right off the bat here with your thoughts about Fear of Flying being a quasi-memoir. And if it had been written today, do you think you would have written it as a memoir? Would it have remained fiction? I don't know. I think a lot of first novels have elements of from the author's life. It's kind of inevitable. When you're writing your first book, you remember all the things that brought you to it and made you want to be a writer. So it often comes into the first book, fictionalized or not. And I've noticed that in many, many first novels by people that there are many autobiographical elements. Later, the writer might move away from their own life. But in the beginning, everybody is obsessed with trying to make sense of their own life. Well, Erica, as as Brooke mentioned, in introducing you, you've written many books, uh, nine novels, eight books of poetry, and, and a bunch of others. Uh, but you're best known for the book that launched you, of course. But I'm curious, has has there been another book of all those you've written that you felt exceeded the effort or the literary merit of Fear of Flying? Um, yeah, I think Fear of Flying is very much a first novel. And I have grown. You know, I've written a period novel set in the 18th century that were much more challenging But the autobiographical elements of Fear of Flying still attract people because it's it's a book about becoming a writer. It's a book about a woman struggling to find herself. And so people identify. Right. And it also just hit such a a zeitgeist moment, I think, was another piece of it. And I I read um, an article about you that described Fear of Flying as being about understanding womanhood in the 1970s. And I really liked that take on it. 
that's probably true. You know, suddenly it was possible to write honestly about sexuality and women. And that was a great blessing in a way, because up until then, women had retreated from talking about the sexual part of their lives. And of course, without that, you don't have the whole story. So it was very helpful that suddenly there were all these books about sexuality being written and one could write about a woman's sexuality. I mean, people were still shocked, but it was possible in a way it wasn't before. And I'd like to follow up uh, because I'm wondering what your take is on the difference between what Isadora wanted for herself in the 1970s versus what women in this age range today, you know, late 20s and early 30s want now. Do you think that anything is substantially different in the culture around women's desire? You know, women want to have a personal life and also a professional life. And they want to blend the two. And that's not always easy. So a book that really puts it out there about choices is still very timely for women. Erica, you know, Brooke and I always chat a bit on the show uh, before a guest comes on. And we were talking today about how so many male writers of this era in the early 70s were, you know, fearlessly indulging in sexual scenes on the page. And I'm thinking about authors like Norman Mailer and Philip Roth and Henry Miller. Right. And then your book came along and asserted that this could be a female space as well to write about sex and desire. Right. And so I'm curious, you, you mentioned that that this was a, a time where there was like kind of finally an opportunity for that space. But I was wondering if you could, could go a little further with that and just talk about your personal inspiration to tackle such issues at this time. Well, I thought that women had to write about their personal lives in a frank way. It hadn't really been possible always. Of course, the best writers did it. But then there were many writers who sort of avoided talking about sexuality for fear that their work would not be taken seriously. And now it's much more possible for women to write about personal things and everything. And I thought that was a great opportunity. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think you paved the way for a lot of folks. And, and now the world of memoir writing is both different and the same. You know, I mean, the way in which it's the same is that it's still quite taboo to write about desire. And I work with a lot of memoirists today in, uh, in 2021 who are still grappling with these notions, you know, of what women are allowed to want. Exactly. I mean, I'm surprised by it in a way that there's still so much fear of revealing oneself, maybe because women get a very hard time when they open up about their sexuality. Mm -hmm. It can be very painful. Yeah. And having gone through it and come through it, and here we are all these decades later, what would you offer to a woman who wants to write about sexuality and desire? I mean, clearly it's it's been worth it, right? It's hard 
you know, it really opens you up to a lot of criticism still. But if you leave that part of life out, there is so much you can't say about experience of women. So we have to be brave. We really do. I noticed when I started writing that men could write openly about sexuality and and women generally didn't. And I thought we had to do what we feared the most. I've always believed that we have to push through fear in order to write things that will resonate with other people. It's really important. Definitely. That's interesting to me, Erica, because you're, you're also, you're a multi-genre author. I'm not sure if a lot of people know that, but you've written almost everything, you know, nonfiction, poetry, fiction, and even children's books. And so you're very prolific and write about a lot of different subjects. And I'm, I'm just curious how, I guess, what motivates you to write so prolifically? What, what are the ingredients that go into your, your special sauce? I always have a million ideas. I think if you're a writer, you have an infinite amount of stuff you can do. Of course, you're more interested in certain things than other things, but I wanted to write intimately about my life. I wanted to write historical novels, which I've done. I love the period of the 18th century. My favorite book is really Fanny Hackabout Jones, about a female picaresque heroine who does everything a woman can possibly do. And I just think it's great if you're a writer to explore many different things. Why not? You know, you might be better at certain things than others, but you have such an open territory. Why not explore everything? Absolutely. I, I love that sentiment. Um, and, and our last question for you, Erica, in noticing that a lot that's been written about you focuses on fearlessness. And, and of course, you've written two books with fear in the title, Fear of Flying and Fear of Dying. Right. Uh, but on the other hand, one of your principal themes is desire. And I was thinking about these as two sides of the same coin, fear and desire. Um, and I'm curious if when you set out to write Fear of Flying, were you conscious of how these themes would define you and your work? No, I, I mean, I was writing the book I needed to write at the time. I didn't think of it thematically. Later, looking back at various books, you can, I can say, oh, I was always obsessed with that theme or the other, you discover by writing what you really are obsessed with, which is very interesting because when you read over your own work, you discover things about yourself you didn't know. It's fascinating to see how you turn to certain themes that you didn't even know you were interested in. Well, and all these years later, did these two themes still rise to the top in terms of your interest in them? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be able to write about sexuality because it was taboo. And I thought women needed to read about it. You know, everybody has desire. Everybody fulfills it in different ways. And it's such a big part of life. 
you have to be honest about it. And one of the things is my readers said to me when I began to publish, oh my God, I feel just the way you do. And I realized that people needed to see their own thoughts on paper. It gave them a feeling of not being alone. Thank you, Erica. I'm really, we are so grateful to have you on the show and just more than that grateful for all, all the work you've done in the world. Thanks for leading the way. Thank you so much, Erica. Thank you. We have Lily Danziger with us on the show today, and she is the author of the forthcoming First Love, an essay collection about the power and complexity of female friendship, as well as the memoir, Negative Space, which was selected by Carmen Maria Machado as a winner of the Santa Fe Writers Project Literary Awards. And she's the editor of Burn It Down, a critically acclaimed anthology of essays on women's anger. Lily has been widely published by Guernica, Literary Hub, The Rumpus, Long Reads, and elsewhere. Uh, she lives in New York City. And Lily, I'm just thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. I wanted to start by saying how grateful I am that you're a voice out there in the vast abyss who is willing to talk about the topic of anger and writing because it's such an important one. And I wonder if we could start on that thread with what inspired you to do a collection of essays about women's anger. Yeah, um, I, I agree. It's really important and should not be shied away from. Uh, I feel like there's so much anger in so many memoirs, but a lot of times it's not addressed head on. The collection actually came to me through Seal Press. The press approached me and asked if I wanted to edit an anthology on the topic of women's anger. And I, of course, jumped at it. I guess the editor had read some of my writing and I, I think followed me on Twitter and just kind of guessed that I would be interested in that topic. And she was very right. Um, I was also in the middle of working on my memoir at the time and finding the anger in my story and trying to figure out how to articulate it. So it was just very well-timed in, in terms of that as well. Well, before you came on, Brooke and I were talking about how women and men have much different latitudes in terms of how they're allowed to express anger. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, given that you've done a lot of thinking about this topic, um, if you can share with readers why women's range of expression when it comes to anger is so, so small. And then has, has there been any improvement here in recent years, or do you think we're, we're just in a pretty stagnant place in, on this? Mm, yeah. I mean, I think in general, women tend to be given a less latitude um, for a lot of things. I mean, anger, there's just a much lower threshold for when a woman is seen as being unreasonable, um, being, you know, overly emotional or irrational or, you know, whatever that is. Whereas, you know, speaking in generalizations, of course, there are exceptions and, you know, subcategories and distinctions and all of that. But I think a man's anger is much more likely to be perceived as, righteous, right? Whereas as women are seen as overreacting and being emotional, but I think women have a lot to be angry about. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that we, we do seem to be moving generally towards a little bit more space for that. There's a little bit more leeway, you know, and there are specific ways and contexts in which women's anger is starting to be seen as acceptable. Um, but it's still, it still kind of has to be 
within these narrow confines, you know, and it still has to be expressed in an acceptable way. A woman can say calmly now that she's angry, but if a woman actually gets angry, that still is a different scenario, I think. Point well taken on that. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about your memoir, Negative Space, because uh, so much of that book is about well, it's all about your dad, of course, but it's it's your reaction to losing him and to finding out about his um, drug addiction as you unfold the story of um, of of what happened to him as a young man and its impact on you. And so there's grief and there's rage and frustration and incredulity. Uh, and so. Uh, your book is really an exploration of his absence, but also coming to terms with the flawed person that he was. So it just struck me as also very human. Um, you know, anger is so very human. So could you talk about the evolution of your anger in writing memoir? And then especially on the heels of curating an anthology like Burn It Down, which in which you're seeing, you know, other writers anger and how they expressed it on the page. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so working on the memoir, there were I had a lot of experiences where I thought I was writing about one emotion and it turned out that I was writing about a different one. Um, and one of those was, you know, when I was trying to write about myself as a teenager, I knew that I was a very angry teenager. That was just apparent from my behavior. I dropped out of high school. I got into fights. I got into a lot of trouble. I did drugs. I was, you know, a hellion. Um, <laughs> and I remembered myself as angry, but in trying to write about that, I had to kind of dig a little deeper than just, you know, I was a pissed off teenager and try to really understand why I was doing the things I was doing and try and bring myself back into that headspace enough to articulate what I was really feeling and discovered the kind of obvious, well, it's obvious now looking back at it, that what I was really feeling was a lot of grief. Um, and that period was not long after my father's death. But at the time, I didn't perceive that as grief. I just thought, you know, I was angry because the world was fucked up and there's a lot to be angry about. So, in that, you know, that was one case where grief was masquerading as anger. And then later in the story, I was writing about, you know, trying to understand how my father actually died. You know, he, they never really gave us a clear answer, but it was through writing the story that I kind of came face to face with the reality that drugs were almost definitely a part of it, you know, even if not directly. Um, so in writing about grief in that case, I found a lot of anger that I hadn't known was there. Uh, so there were those a few points like that in the book where I thought I was writing about one emotion and then another one just kind of popped up on the page and I had to contend with it. And so this was all happening, you know, immediately before I started editing the anthology, uh, the anthology came out first, but I'd been working on the memoir for a long time at that point. So when I started working with other writers on their stories, I was already kind of familiar with this shape-shifting that anger can do and was able to kind of prod them a little bit to dig deeper and say, you know, but why? <laughs> why did you feel that way? What might be underneath that? And I discovered that happening a lot in their pieces as well. That's so interesting to think about anger as a shape-shifting emotion or as other emotions kind of being layered beneath it in an, even in an invisible way, at least at the time. Yeah. And you wrote in the intro, there's one line that really, really um, grabbed me that I think relates to this. Um, 
you wrote in the intro to burn it down a line um, that says our anger doesn't have to be useful to deserve a voice. And I guess I, in, in my mind, I imagine somebody pushing back on that a little bit in a writing workshop. Um, yet, yet I agree with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you think that anger has had useful purposes in literature and eras past and why in modern times we're so triggered by anger in literature, mm. or maybe we're only triggered by anger in personal narratives. So I'd, I'd love to hear your take on this. Yeah. I mean, I think anger can be very useful, but, you know, that line I was kind of thinking about what I was saying earlier about how there are certain very specific parameters where it's culturally acceptable to be angry, right? It's it's okay if you're harnessing anger into activism and you're, you know, using anger to fuel a movement. And I think that's good and very important but I think sometimes it's enough just to feel angry because you've been wronged because something is, is wrong. Right. And, and you know it and you're feeling a natural reaction to it, which often is anger. Um, and that can be enough, right. That can be enough to deserve space and air and all of that um, without you immediately having to turn around and do something useful with it. Right. I think that's actually a very kind of capitalistic way of looking at it. Right. You're allowed to have an emotion as long as you're doing something productive with it. But that's not how humans work. We just we have our emotions naturally, often automatically, often subconsciously. Uh, and we might eventually put them to some external, you know, righteous use. But I don't think that's a necessity in order for the emotion itself to be valid. So that's more, I guess, like the cultural context. But then I think whatever our cultural hangups are, are always reflected in the literature that we're writing at the time. Um, and so and similarly, right, we have like revenge narratives and, you know, these plots where, yes, the protagonist is angry, but they're, it's their anger fuels them in a just cause, right? But I wanted to also make space for people just to feel angry because something has happened to them. Maybe they don't know what to do with that anger, and maybe they don't even realize that they're angry, but it still is driving them and, and driving their actions. I think that's just as important. Well, as our final question, given that this you know topic today has been circling women's anger, um, and because I think it's such an important topic, could you speak to the difference between showing anger in scene contrasted with the nuanced perspective of your wise, older, reflective narrator. And, you know, if you have another memoir, maybe that you turned to in this that you thought, oh, that person did what you were attempting to achieve. I always love to hear that as well. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the character, me and the narrator, me in negative space are both angry. <laughs> um <laughs> just to kind of in different ways, you know, I was writing about the, you know, my younger self driven by a lot of anger without analyzing it or questioning it, you know, just, just feeling, feeling it and going on instinct in a, a very kind of, I wrote about my teenage self almost as a wild animal. Cause that kind of is what I was and how I was acting, um, just going purely by instinct. Um, whereas the narrator, version of myself, you know, is like 15 years older than the character version is confronting a lot of anger on the page and kind of going through the actual process in real time of accepting it and facing it and making space for it and learning to have a kind of 
healthier relationship with it so that it can be there without consuming me, you know? And, and I think ultimately that's the, that should be the goal with anger is, is not to try and purge yourself of it, but to make a healthy space for it in your life. So yeah, those were two very different kind of forms that it took on the page, but I think both were really necessary and important. Let's see who does it. Well, I mean, Lydia Yuknovich, the chronology of water, I think she writes anger really, really well. And I think actually kind of has a similar thing where she writes about, you know, her, her younger self doing a lot of destructive things and, and being fueled by, by anger and hurt and grief and, you know, a lot of heavy things that she doesn't quite know how to deal with at that point in the story. And her narrator self is definitely, you know, wiser and more self-aware is still angry. Right? It doesn't mean that you grow out of that. It just means that you know how to articulate it and you understand it better and you're maybe not as driven by it, but it's still very much there. Thank you, Lily. Yeah, thanks so much. This was so interesting to think about this topic. Yeah, thank you. Always happy to talk about this. <laughs> we'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This week's book trend is interesting to me because the founder and CEO of Medium, Ev Williams, uh, stepped down after 10 years and there is a new CEO and potentially a new direction. And I think why this is interesting to writers is because Medium, gosh, when it started 10 years ago, it was, it was, it was such a pleasant place to go and read and write because there were no ads. That was part of its promise. And it had this beautiful interface that really invited um, reading. And so a lot of writers gravitated to it. I did too. I've written a lot for Medium. I still write for Medium. I, I still like it as a publishing platform. But on the downside, you know, Medium wasn't quite making it as a business or not making it as much as they wanted to. And it just seemed like every other week they were coming up with a with a new business plan and a new business direction. And it really affected writers and publishers Um you know, negatively, you know, and I think it offered a lot of promise for writers to make a living with their writers and it didn't really deliver. Um, so anyway, brought up this whole topic to me of trendy platforms and, and do we embrace them and how do we embrace them and when do we embrace them? And, you know, what, what, what should our attitude be towards them? And so Brooke, I guess the question for you is, do you have any experiences like this with, with, you know, internet platforms? Yeah, because I wrote a lot for Huffington Post back in the day and I wrote for free and I loved it because my stuff would get featured on the homepage and then it would nearly go viral. I mean, I can't say it was like a massive, massive viral, but it would get, you know, thousands and thousands of likes and it was really satisfying and I felt like I got my name out there really broadly. And then one day Huffington Post decided they just weren't going to do that anymore. And all of us who had those kinds of accounts where we could post for free just had nowhere to go. And Medium, of course, was a 
backup plan for a lot of us. And I know a lot of people who switched over to Medium, but it was super upsetting because you had this platform that ostensibly you felt you had some control over and then Huffington Post pulled the plug. And it sounds like a sort of similar version of that is happening, although Medium is not pulling the plug. It's changed to the point where writers are maybe a little more ambivalent about whether to keep going. I think ambivalence is a key word. I feel like writers are disenchanted with Medium. I think when a platform keeps switching directions and payment plans and all that kind of stuff, it just makes it, you know, it makes you not trust the platform because I think in the end, you know, Medium was looking for a business plan instead of creating a community of writers and readers. And I think it should have, my, my advice is lean more into the creating a community of writers and readers and trust that they'll go in a good place. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, I, I guess, I guess this really resonates for me and your, your experience with Huffington Post is really interesting to me because I've totally forgotten that Huffington Post <laughs> exists. I'm not sure <laughs> if it does or if it existed. And I think that that's probably what will happen with Medium. Uh, I'm currently leaning into Substack uh, for all, all of my writing and I love it. I kind of say I love the blog features, love the news. It's like, a, whatever. It, how does someone characterize it? It's a, it's a newsletter that just also happens to be a blog. But anyway, I love it, but I also know that it might have the fate of Medium. So I guess my advice for writers is to to use these platforms cautiously, you know, yeah. to embrace them in the moment. I'm not going to lose anything because I'm going to make sure I get my content back from Medium and back from Substack. And to tell you the truth right now, like I post on Substack and I cross post some things that I think will play well on Medium over there. Jane Friedman made the point that she didn't go, I think, for either of them. She kind of holds her own content on a blog or a website and there might be some advantages to that but also i think there's more it's harder to get a following that way well and jane has a giant following and i think that makes a lot of sense but it's something to cultivate over time and for so many people the appeal of huffington post or of a place like medium is getting the word out more yeah. broadly and landing in people's inboxes i mean it's one of the reasons that we partnered with lit hub kind of a similar way of thinking about things that your content is going to get out there more broadly in the world but that's my recommendation too no matter where you're posting whether it's medium or Substack or the next new thing cross post because if you have an archive of your stuff someplace that is cross posted and you can say this ran simultaneously on medium or this ran simultaneously on Substack, then when they pull the plug you always have your content living someplace where you have control of it i think that's a good good idea well said brooke and that's our advice for you this week writers cross post Thanks for listening to Right Minded each week as we're on our summer break. We hope you're all having a relaxing August and we will see you next week. 